Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. So good to be together. If we haven't met, I'm Chip Freed, the lead teaching pastor here at Garfield Memorial Church. Um, I'm an emotional mess today. Uh, For all of you who are not 50 yet, just learn on my dime. Once you cross that, all you do is cry all the time. Um, I've been crying all morning. We had our parking lot service this morning, and uh, a lot of our children showed up to take palm branches and walk out amidst the cars, even in the rain. And we get these young adults who sing in the Heritage Choir, a very diverse group of young adults. And I, they, they're just majestically singing. And I'm thinking, these, these young adults have been with us here doing this for like a year. I'm making sure that service is vibrant and vital and out caroling at homes uh, during the winter months with, with uh, people who were all alone. And uh, I just got so emotional. We had a big bus in our parking lot this morning. I don't know if you saw it. I, seriously, I'm going to tell my wife. She'll be mad at me after. She texted me and said, you're not getting planning to do some demonstration I didn't know about, are you? you know? like, I'm like, honey, I don't know. There's a bus in the parking lot. I didn't do it. And found out uh, one of our members of the church, Matt Terman, he drives a bus. Uh, and uh, he said, hey, man, I, I want to come in and get my worship on before I went and picked up my gig. And I'm like, I just started crying. And it reminded me kind of what the band did. I didn't know they were going to turn off the lights there when it seems like darkness had won. You can't stop Easter. You can't stop the gospel. Brother, you and I were talking about that before this service today. You can't, it's, it's that little flower that comes up through the cracks. You know, um, or I could go Jurassic Park with Jeff Goldblum. Life finds a way, right? <laughs> I know. All the millennials are like, what? Like, yeah. Who's Jeff Goldblum? Um, but God finds a way. Have you realized this? No pandemic. No scourge of racism. No injustice. No devil in hell can stop the life of the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ from emerging. And, and I had to have kids. I had to have six and seven-year-olds. I haven't seen. I, this, I'm having a problem right now because I haven't seen all the children from Garfield for like a year. And they come back and now they're looking me in the eyes. And I'm like, when did this happen? Like you didn't get your pastor permission. But I see six and seven-year-olds out there just waving the palms of Jesus. Got their masks on. They're out in the, and I'm like, you cannot stop Easter. You can't stop God. It reminded me, um, I, nothing to do with my message, by the way, so I'm just preaching. Um, but when I was in college, some of you know, it was my college chaplain that brought me to Christ. Um, he, you know, officiated my wife and I's wedding. He was a spiritual mentor for me. One of the great honors I ever had was to go preach his eulogy at Colgate University. But I remember my first Easter after he had kind of brought me to Jesus Christ. He preached a sermon uh, that, that said, you can't keep God dead. 
And then he said it this way, you can't keep God dead in your life. He will show up. He will resurrect. And I've been feeling that spirit of resurrection today. And I know we're preparing for Easter, and that's why I'm so glad Pastor Scott will lead us on Monday, Thursday. Pastor Steve will leave us on Good Friday. Because you can't just run up to Easter without getting through the resurrection or through the crucifixion. You've got to go to the cross first. You've got to look in the mirror at the depth of our, of our disorientation, at the depth of what we're capable of. You and I, each one of us, there's a shadow in us, there's a dark side in us. I always say, we've, I've got angels in my attic and I've got beasts in my basement. And I've got to keep those two in check. And so don't just run to Easter and always oh, celebrate the resurrection without staring down the cross and realizing the price that was paid. What God had to do to reconcile us. That's, that's, our, that's our series. You know, in this church, if you've been around with us, our Vision 2020 team went through a whole year reflecting on what is God going to do with us for the next 10 years. Because to be part of the church, to be here at Garfield, it's not just to show up on Sunday and get some spiritual goodies. We're called to be a people. Peter looked at us at the church and said, you're a chosen people. You're a holy priesthood, a holy nation. You're God's own possession. We're not here just to check in and get some chicken soup for the soul. We're in here to be something different, be something radically different for the world. And when we see what Jesus Christ did going into that Jerusalem that first Sunday, do you realize if Jesus had hung out in Galilee, if he'd stayed out there in the Houston suburbs or whatever it was and never gone to Jerusalem, he would have been one of the most iconic, uh, popular religious figures ever. I don't want to name any contemporary preachers, but he'd have been the best of them. But he had to go to Jerusalem. And people told him, don't go. Read the, read the scriptures. They said, look, Jesus, Herod's out for you. <laughs> like the political powers are after you. The religious people don't like you. Like, don't go to Jerusalem. And you know what Jesus said? I know what's ahead of me. But today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way to Jerusalem. I'm going to go do the hard work of reconciliation. And I'm going to tell you, if nothing else this week, when you, we go to communion with Scott, we listen to Steve at the cross, realize that this work of reconciliation, which is so essential, it's hard work. It's not kumbaya work. It's thorns and nails and the spilling of blood. And Jesus calls us to it. And, if it, and we have to realize he set his face. That's how we started this series. He intended to go. He, it wasn't by accident. He said, I need to bring my people back in right relationship with me. Right? That's what reconciliation actually means. I, I started studying the word. It took me, I, I, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. Like we've been preaching on this for eight weeks. And I said, why don't I go and look at a definition of reconciliation? Like maybe I should have done that before we started the series. But anyhow. I went in there, and you know the most common synonym that scholars use for reconciliation is restoration. It's restoring us. Restoring us to who we're created to be. Restoring us to the community we're called to be. Right? That God's intention for the world. And Jesus said he went into Jerusalem to bring us back into right relationship with God. 
through the cross and then through this idea he had about the church to bring us back into right relationship with each other. Restoring us. Restoring our life. Restoring community. Restoring what was meant to be, some scholars say, in the academy, in the colleges, that reconciliation means bringing back friendship and harmony. Oh my gosh, do we need that again. Amen? Friendship. Harmony. Right? Being, being back and, and, and not, not striving so hard. Did you hear Isaiah, the passage Scott said, no more finger pointing. I just love that. I was so convicted. Like how many fingers have I pointed out there? But we want to restore friendship and harmony. And that word reconciled and used in, in different audiences. In one, in one area, there was a conference that was done in Cleveland a couple of, I don't know, four or five years ago that was called the Reconciliation Conference between Art and technology. And I thought that's what reconciliation is, is taking things that are very different and unique. Each one of us here created so unique. Do you ever know, I've said this before, your fingerprint, you know what it means? Never before, never again. And that God can create that uniqueness, but yet find common ground and bring us together in the midst of our, of our differences. That's what reconciliation is. In accounting, any accountants out there? If you're a CPA? Okay, nobody's plotting. Um, nobody, you won't admit it. I understand. Um, my dad was an accountant. I worked for him. I called accountants constant pain. And anyhow, um, you know, but he said, yeah, but you're a, a SOB. You're a son of the boss. So we had those fights. But in accounting, they talk about uh, reconciling is what? Reconciling the books right? Bringing agreement between the numbers, bringing equality in somewhere. And this is the work. When you read Paul in, in, in his letters to the Corinthians, we're called to do. Jesus gave everything he had to bring us back and to restore us to say, hey, here's the relationship you were created for. You were to be like Enoch and just walk with God and, and be in relationship and then be in harmony with one another. But you guys pulled the thread. Have you ever... Anybody know what I mean by that? Pull the thread? You know, my wife gets so mad at me. You know, if I snag a, something on the clothes and it's hanging there, and I'll get ready, and she'll go, don't pull the thread! Because what happens? Right? Yeah, whole thing. You know, but me, I'm, I'm Mr. Activator, and my top five, I pull the thread, and pretty soon I'm naked in public. I mean, you know, but we pulled the thread. See, God did not create the world with just a bunch of threads. God's a master weaver. And God threw everything out on the table and it began to weave it together. How many of you know when fabric is strong? When it's together, it's because the threads are over and under and around and through. And that's how we were created to be. But we pulled the thread. <laughs> and we began to unravel this thing. And that's why um, in Micah, the, the passage Scott read for you, I love that verse. Micah 6, 8 is really a go-to verse for me. But what happened there is God called us into court. Called us into court. You know, and we see Jesus, we'll see it this week, he goes into court. You know, there was a great uh, 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 attorney uh, that was a Christian that studied the Jewish law and looked at the kangaroo court that Jesus went through. We see corruption in our court system. I'm going to tell you, he, he, he deducted that there were 101 Jewish laws that were violated when they took Jesus to court. False witnesses, court at night, right? And, and we see him the victim of 
you know, oppression, the victim of injustice. But God, at one point, called the whole human race into court. If you read Micah 6, he said, I've got a complaint against my people. And he says, come in here. And he says, I'm going to appoint a jury. Guess who his jury was? The mountains. <laughs> How would you like to plead your case in front of the Rocky Mountains, the Grand Canyon, the Pacific Ocean? <laughs> like God said, I'm going to plead before creation. Have you ever seen anything like this? Like my people, I deliver them. I reach out to them and they rebel. And then God said, what have I done that you've grown weary of me? Do you know what's happening right now in America? Like we had this big surge like once coronavirus hit and stuff, people were afraid they're going to die, right? Do you know there was only one spike in church attendance in the last 60 years before the coronavirus? You know when it was? 9-11. You know how long it lasted? Four months. <laughs> and it's almost like we're seeing that right now. Online attendance is dwindling. If you're here, we love you. But why? Because, oh God, we're going to survive. <laughs> like we really need to go. We might die. Oh, we're going to survive. Okay, well, let's go to Bahamas. You know, and God says, what, am I, what have I done that you've grown weary with me? And then the people panic. If you read that, it's a great passage in Micah 6. And they say, well, maybe, maybe if we give God 10,000 rivers of oil. What was oil? Oil back then was currency. Like maybe we can pay God off. Maybe he's greedy like we are. And then they say, well, well maybe we can give God our firstborn. Maybe God's bloodthirsty like we are. And Micah says, you already know what's required of you. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. I love that. N.T. Wright is an amazing theologian. He said, he, he broke his leg a couple years ago, and he was thinking about it. He said, he went to the hospital, his leg was set, got the cast, he was struggling on crutches for a while, but he knew at some point my leg will get better and we'll walk again. And he said, that's the human race. We know something's broken. We, we know we need like help, we need to set it. We're struggling, but, but there's a voice within us that says it's gonna get right again. And he said that voice became flesh in Jesus Christ and walked into Jerusalem to set things right. And that's why Micah said, you already know the voice. You already know what's required of you. Do justice. Do it. Live it. Breathe it. See, that word justice has gotten a real bad rap in the church these days. It just, it, it tickles me. And I always say, like, justice isn't, like, tangential to the gospel. Justice is the gospel. Like, if you say you love people, but you don't want justice for them, that's, that's, that's hollow love, right? It's objectification. Like, like if I love you, if I, in fact, Cornell West, one of my teachers said that the definition of justice is what love looks like in public. It's, it's making things right. It's that voice. It's that, that heightening, that pouring into each other. And we'll hear on Monday, Thursday, uh, why we call it Monday, Thursday. Because it was the night of the mandate. What was the mandate? Jesus said, Moses gave you ten commandments. You could not hang, hang in there. So I'll give you one. Love one another as I am loving you. Like pour into each other. That's the doing of justice. In Isaiah, I love that passage that Scott read. I, and I really, if you go home, here's your homework for Holy Week for me. Meditate on the 58th chapter of Isaiah that, that, that Scott read. Because it was the doing of justice 
right? In fact, did you hear how many times where I was listening when Scott read, and I've heard this now three services, and it finally got home to my hard head, where it says, if you're on my holy day still doing your way, if you're seeking to do your things on my day, you're missing it. Right? Like this, this is learning how to live a life following this God that we have. Justice isn't some committee out there somewhere. It's central to the gospel. In fact, if you read Isaiah 58, he's talking to people who are doing all the right things. Did you hear what Scott read? They seek me night and day. Do you know what the word seek was in Hebrew? Worship. Here are people who are obeying the Ten Commandments. They're in church every Sunday. They're, they're praying all the time. They're giving 10% of their money to the work of the church. And God says they're in rebellion. Whoa. In fact, they even say, God, we're fasting and you're not listening. We're praying and you're not answering. And did you hear those verses where, 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 where God says that... Um, You don't know what a fast looks like. You don't know what worship really is. Watch this. Verses 6 and 7. Is not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry? Let me tell you something. I'm I'm, I'm all off of my outline. The tech people are back there going, where's Chip? I don't get the... I get it. But this, this share your food with the hungry, this isn't go drop off some food for the food pantry, which is very important, by the way. And I'm going to tell you, our food pantry people should be congratulated. I cannot tell you the meals this past year that they have done. But you know what this literally means in the Hebrew? It means to wait on. Like, I, I don't, it's good, write your check, bring some canned goods, but I want you to wait on the poor. I want you to be out there doing it. Not just knowing about doing it. I want you, I want to see you in the midst of this. This is what a fast looks like. This is what works, that you're out there doing the needs of food with the hungry, providing the poor wanderer. That's controversial in the United States right now. But that word poor wanderer means that it's somebody that's totally displaced. Somebody that comes into your region, into your neighborhood, culturally different, has no, he depends or she depends on your hospitality. See, we always talk about feed the hungry, give a drink of water, you know, visit those in prison. But Jesus also said, as equal is, I am a stranger. I'm somebody that walked into Garfield Memorial Church and you just went and talked to your friends, right? We, somebody's a poor wanderer and, and you're providing for them shelter when you see the naked to clothe them. This, is, this, isn't, this isn't a sidebar to the gospel. This is the gospel. Like I see people reject Christianity. I'm not sure they know what they rejected. Like, I was that guy. I was like Malcolm Chip way back in the day. Church is racist and sexist and don't care about the poor. I didn't realize, like, to reject Christianity is to reject this call. To live it out. Do you know what you rejected? Do you know what you've accepted? Because Jesus said, if you don't do this, if you don't do this, you don't know me. In fact, Matthew 25, what did he say? You know, I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you didn't give me water. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. People said, well, Lord, wouldn't we do this when you didn't do it to the least of these? Jesus said, you didn't do it to me. 
Proverbs says, if you insult the poor, you insult the Lord. If you give to the poor, you give to the Lord. These are the masks that God wears. He says, I called you out to equal the playing field. I called you out to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world and the yeast and the dough. I called you not just to reject things, but to inject. The empowering love of the gospel. I'm, I'm, I'm so off my thing, but it's, this is the heart of the Bible, friends. It's basically saying, you may think you know me because you're going to church and you're reading your Bible and you're saying your prayers, but if you don't have the heart for people who are hurting and wounded and oppressed and victims of injustice, Jesus says, you don't know me. You, you have a formal relationship. Right? You're a member of the law firm, but you're not walking with me and talking with me and journeying with me. And this is what we're called to do. And I want that to challenge you. Anybody feeling guilty right now? Have I done my job? Yeah, a few hands. How about you online? See, it's my job. You pay me to make you feel guilty. That's my job. But let me tell you something. Guilt, finally, it can be a motivator, but it doesn't last. This is what I've learned in ministry. Like I was taught all the tricks to make you come to the altar. Everybody bow your heads, put your hand up. I see you, brother, you know. Like I make you feel guilty. But it doesn't last. But God isn't trying to guilt us into the kingdom. God is inviting us. He's showing us the glory of it. Do you realize what a world is? So put this slide up if you guys can find it. I know I'm all over the place. That it, justice is not the absence. It's not the absence of something. It's the presence of something, right? That biblical justice is not absence, it's the presence of what? Shalom. I learned this from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. My wife yells at me, says, you quote Dr. King too much. I'm like, like he led me to Christ. I can't help myself. But Dr. King talked about negative peace and positive peace. And he was talking specifically back in his day about riots and what have you. And what he was saying is, there's a negative piece. Like the negative piece is just the absence of conflict, right? There's no bullets flying. There's no fires burning. Like anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti... You know, like those are good things. Like we say when we join the church that we will reject and stand up against any form of evil and injustice in whatever form they present themselves. But too many Christians stop there. We're just against that. We're against this. We're No. We have to be the presence of something different. And Dr. King said positive peace is the presence, the living presence of people who are living, loving, out loud. Cornell West, what is justice? Love looks like in public. Living out loud. Loving out loud. That, That when people are doing that, then the conditions of which are creating these things are eliminated because injecting ourselves in the presence. And that isn't just, when we experience that, when we taste it, you know what it is? It's beautiful. It's beauty. See, we motivate our kids all the wrong way. I was talking to my wife this week, and we were like, oh boy, we flunked this one. Because how do you make your kids tell the truth? You know what we do? Fear and pride. Right? You don't tell the truth, you're going to go to jail in an Enron scandal. You'll be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Like, yeah, right? Like, fear. And how's that work in religion? God will come get you. 
or pride, right? Like, don't be like those terrible people that never tell the truth. And, and when psychologists tell us why people lie, it's out of fear and pride. <laughs> like they're afraid to get caught or they're too proud, you know. Like we are creating self-centeredness. So don't, it can't be like, well, Chip's preaching on justice. I need to feed the hungry. I need to do this. Like, I, you, I just added one more thing to your list. Like, you'll be somebody in the Isaiah passage of, well, I fasted, and I gave my offering, and I gave to the food pantry, and I went to the rally. Why isn't God listening to me? No, we don't do it out of fear and pride. Because if you do it that way, guess what? You're not loving God for God's sake. You're not loving people for people's sake. You're loving for your sake and trying to earn your own salvation. But when you see the beauty of what a community looks like that lives in this kind of shalom. See, shalom in, in English is such a rudimentary language. And we say shalom means peace. It means more than that. It means the presence of all things right. There was a, a, a theologian named uh, Neil Plantinga who said it this way. He said, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in equity, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed, all under the ark of God's love. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And when you walk into that, fallen out theologian, you don't do it because you're feeling guilty. You don't do it because you're prideful. You do it because it's beautiful. It's like Dorothy opening the door in a black and white movie and seeing the wonder of Oz. I saw that once. I've seen it more than once, to be honest. I see it in you guys a lot more than you know. I see it at our communion table. But I saw it, I, my first church, my wife and I were served, was in a, a, a lower income area in Lorain County. It was on the south side of Elyria. Um, we went in there. Our church was destined for closure. And, and we saw new life develop. And we chartered this 501c3 corporation entitled Save Our Children of Elyria, Inc. We did business as Save Our Children, Inc. And uh, we had 300, 350 children, youth, and poverty that we ministered to every day. And let me tell you, I probably had some pride in me. I was probably your typical, oh, do good or I'll go and rescue the poor, right? But you know what I found in that? I found community. I found family. You know why kids join gangs? Anybody know? Looking for family. Looking for community. And we became an alternative gang on the south side of, of Elyria. I got to tell you something. When you have gang members that come to the altar and take pistols out of their back and put them on the altar and give their life to Christ, you're tasting something. I'd never seen that before. And I saw this community being built. And my wife and I have been doing this podcast, some of you know, Freed for Love or Loving Beyond Boundaries. We're just trying to push that. And uh, we, we had a guest on our second uh, episode, Dr. A.G. Miller. Dr. A.G. Miller, for years, he just retired. He was the head of black and Africana studies for Oberlin College. And A.G. and I became buds. And he was on our board of directors of Save Our Children. And we were doing all this ministry. And before we recorded the podcast his wife Brenda and Terry and I were just catching up like long lost brothers and sisters and he got a little emotional and he said Chip do you remember Fiddler on the Roof oh man that just stopped me in my tracks 
And see, one of the ministries we did with those kids is we started a theater outreach. Because we found out that theater, like I was an old basketball player, I didn't know much about theater. But theater became a way for kids to get their emotions out. And, you know, as you're playing somebody, Terry and I had one of the kids over like two years ago, came here to Garfield, and she goes, that character changed my life. Like they were able to work it through. And so we did the whiz, we did all the stuff you were supposed to do. But I let the kids pick a play. Like, I didn't want to have, you know, be stereotype what they were doing. So I gave them all the Broadway classics. I was scared to death they were going to do West Side Story, man. I was scared to death. Man, you've got to have some people with pipes to do that movie. Uh, but I was going to turn it into South Side Story and turn it into hip-hop and rap, so you would have liked to have seen that. But anyhow, they, they went through all the great other plays, Oklahoma, all these things, and these kids picked Fiddler on the Roof. Can you imagine that? This was an all-African-American cast. In fact, we got an award from Broadway that said in the 30 years running of Fiddler on the Roof, it was the first time it was ever done by an all-African-American cast. And this was shortly after Crown Heights. Anybody remember that? Where the Jewish community and the African-American community were a little tight. So these kids chose Fiddler on the Roof. And I said, why do you guys want to do this? Do you know what they said? Family. Family. And so I'm getting death threats from the black Muslim community in Lorain County because I'm a white pastor making these black kids do a Jewish play. <laughs> like, it was fun. You had to be in my world. And then A.G. Miller was the head of black studies. He told the head of Jewish studies at Oberlin, these kids up here are doing Fiddler on the Roof. And we opened that night, and there were 1,500 people at Elyria High School came in, and the first six rows were Jewish families. Some of them had brought casserole dishes. And they came, and these kids poured their heart out. And you know, at the end of the play, where you're supposed to, they do their, you know, their bow, and then you're close the grand drape. I learned to say that. You close the curtain. But in theater, you have to say, the grand drape. But we're getting ready. They've done their thing. And, and, you know, on the side, our tech team is starting to close the curtain. And the Jewish family set up and said, no, don't close the curtain. And they rushed the stage. And there they were. This odd knob of kids in poverty, African-American youth from malaria, Jewish families from all over Lorain County, hugging and weeping and sharing casserole dishes. And I started to cry. Not because it was useful. Not because we did some good thing. Because it was beautiful. And when you see the beauty of Shalom, you'll serve. You'll share. You'll welcome. You won't just reject. You infuse the love and the glory of God that Jesus infused when he got on a donkey. He should have been on a stallion. But he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant and was willing to endure death, even death on a cross, for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? Shalom. Let's work for it. Let's live for it. Will you do it? In Jesus' name.